The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion hosted by Michael Guyad. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lead Lag Report. And joining me for the hour is Brad Freeman, the stock market nerd himself. I remember a, a time, Brad, when being a nerd was a bad thing. And suddenly it's now become the, the, the right way to look at life. So introduce yourself, Brad, to the audience. Who are you? What's your background? Did you get involved, interested in markets? And what are you doing currently? Yeah, thanks for having me. And, and uh, yeah, to me, nerd is just another way of saying passionate about something. So extremely passionate about stocks and, and investing in businesses. I've been pretty much my entire life. I've had, I've had great role models growing up. I'm, I'm 26 years old, just, just for context. My, my, my dad had me learning PE ratios and, and, and what revenue meant when, before I could, before I could divide and, and multiply. That's actually how I learned how to divide and multiply by looking at, at PE ratios and other valuation ratios. But. I'm kind of zooming ahead. I, I graduated from the University of Michigan in 2019, immediately started a, a master's in finance program at the U- University of Michigan in 2020, Gra- finished that about 18 months ago, I think. I've worked at a registered investment advisor for about a year, a small shop called Diversified Portfolios in Metro Detroit, where I am based for six months a year and then Fort Lauderdale for the other six months. Remote work I, I fully take advantage of as a as a 26-year-old snowbird and I like to eat dinner at 4.30 p.m. and and, and knit in my free time and, and all those wonderful things. But but yeah, I, I wrote for The Motley Fool for a little while, stopped writing for The Motley Fool in, I think, 2022. Just there was a lot of interest on Twitter and me kind of branching out and writing my own content. So I, I did start, I started doing that. I, I write a newsletter that covers popular companies and my holdings and macro. And and yeah, that it's stock market nerd, me, me and stock market, very passionate to me. And 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 yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to be able to do what I love to do. Um, yeah, that's me. What, what did your father do career-wise? I mean, if he had an influence on you on the investing side, was he doing it because that's part of his profession or just because he, he loved investing? Yeah, so he's had sort of a two-part career. So he started out at a fund, as an analyst at a fund before we had Capital IQ and, and all those wonderful things and had to mine data manually, which he's told me horror stories about. But he now actually runs a, a dry mixed food manufacturing company in, in Detroit, not super related at all to the investing world. But he's always been in that frame of mind and, and has conditioned me and my, my two brothers to very much so think in that, that opportunistic risk reward frame of mind. And is that mindset primarily more along the lines of fundamental analysis or technicals as well? Yeah, my, my background very, is, is very much so in, in, in fundamental analysis. It, it, so just very, very much so tracking demand and, and margin preservation and, and market share and, and prospects versus risks and, and again, risk reward and just seeking out, I guess, just the, the most compelling opportunities at the most compelling price with the 
highest conviction that, and I know that's a very cookie cutter answer, but, but really over from the overarching 30 foot or 30,000 foot view that, that really is where my mind is focused. I don't pay very much attention to charts, but I, I do find that when, when fundamentals are, are flawless and, and valuations are attractive and markets are cooperating, technicals and fundamental health do kind of sync up pretty commonly. I look at it from a fundamental perspective. A lot of brilliant people look at it from a technical perspective. Just, I think, two, two different points of view for, for doing things effectively in both cases, potentially effectively. So what you're saying is you are all in on NVIDIA. That, that's what I'm hearing on, on your give the fundamental focus. I'm joking, of course. Yeah. Yeah. In, in NVIDIA, I know there's probably a lot of people in here who are passionate about the company. So I will refrain from giving the valuation commentary, but I will just say that no, I didn't know it is not in the portfolio currently. Okay. You know, one of the criticisms around fundamental analysis, which I think is largely true, is that you know, it lags the technicals, right? So the technicals tend to move first, then the fundamentals follow. That's only true up to a point because technicals obviously can result in, you know, overreactions on the upside and downside for people that are following different indicators. How do you think about the lead and lag, pun intended, relative to my username, but sort of the lead and lag dynamics of stock price and fundamentals? Because yes, you know, there is an argument that markets are largely efficient and should be pricing in what the fundamentals tell you. Yeah, and, and I, I'm, I think I'm with you on that markets are rarely efficient or, or maybe kind of like broken clock is right twice a day at type, type efficient. But to me, it's that inefficiency that that's so compelling about markets and that old saying of babies being thrown out in the bathwater and using the, the cliche worn quote of greedy one fearful and fearful one greedy. But it's really for, for me, it's fixating on fundamental health. So tracking how the fundamental bull case is, is developing and evolving versus all the risks that are inherently present. And then using things like 2022, where just everything is being sold off indiscriminately. Doesn't matter how well you're performing. Doesn't matter what your price tag is. If you're labeled, if you're labeled a growth company and have revenue growth in excess of GDP, you are being, you are being sold off. But while that sounds frustrating, that, that, that's really what creates the recipe and the opportunity for alpha. So it's, it's kind of leaning in almost when, when technicals do look a bit fragile and when maybe some TA people would be leaning away. And just taking advantage of the fact that I have this multi-year time horizon and I can wait for charts to look a little more friendly and I can wait for sentiment to turn a little bit more. And, and I know that charts and sentiment probably are going to turn as long as revenue is compounding at a brisk clip, as long as there's operating leverage in the model, as long as their market share position isn't deteriorating, as, as long as they're effectively expanding into new adjacencies for revenue growth and have a lengthy runway. It's, it's almost selfishly using broken, broken technicals when they're combined with, with, with pristine fundamentals and a compelling valuation and, and selfishly using that to my advantage. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I do think it's, it's, correct me if I'm wrong on this, but you know, fundamentals really help you to have confidence in a, in a aggressively declining market. Because if you're talking fundamentals, you're talking about long-term prospects, not short-term dislocations. Couldn't agree more. Okay. So let's, let's talk about, you know, the last three, four years, obviously. You know, your experience on the career side and obviously your, your studying has happened in a pretty wild period where a lot of cycles got compressed post-COVID. Have you been finding it easier or harder to find good fundamental plays given what's happened this year? Yeah, I think, I think several months ago it was, it was, it felt easy, but I guess that that's probably using a little bit of hindsight bias just because things have worked out over the last few months. So now I guess, I guess looking back, it feels easy, but. I mean, with, with companies like leaning into Uber in, in the high 20s and, and PayPal in the high 50s and Master around 30 and, and things like that, there were, there were, there were just these excellent businesses just compounding revenue as far as the eye could see at 10, 15, 20% clips. 
and and trading at peg ratios with 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 phenomenal asset bases and, and really iconic brands trading at peg ratios well under one x. So peg ratio meaning and I know you know this, but in case somebody else doesn't, price to earnings divided by earnings growth. I do love to use multi year takers for earnings growth just to kind of smoothen out the the lumpiness and noise of of earnings growth in a lot of models. But it it it, it has gotten very fun very quickly. So over the last I, I guess several weeks or a few months, just aggressive aggressive multiple expansion to a point where as aggressively as I was leaning into some names in, in late 2021 and early 2022 and throughout most of 2022, I've since kind of pivoted into trim mode and, and not, not, I mean, I'll always be predominantly invested. I, I'm a long-term investor. I, I, I have a, a bullish bias, very slight bullish bias, but it's there, but I, I do trim and, and I'm not a just buy and forget. I'm, I'm a, when, when Shopify it, it races from 30 bucks to, to 70 bucks a share and it's trading at triple the gross profit multiple, the S&P 500. Yes, I will trim some when, when the trade desk trades at a peg ratio over 3x, which anything above 1.5x is starting to get a little pricey, I do trim a little bit. And, and that kind, those kind of scenarios have been popping up very recently with all this aggressive price action. Have, uh, have pivoted from accumulate, accumulate, accumulate to, to gradual trimming and building the cash position. And for me, that means cash pile grows by a few percent. It, it's really gradual, but it, it is an important part of risk management for me. Hi, right, let, since you mentioned Shopify, I feel like we should, we should talk about fundamentals maybe by sector, right? So peg ratio is obviously great for tech names, right? PE price to book, probably more for, you know, kind of more hard asset type of type of companies. Do you do you do you look at different sectors and say to yourself, you know what, this ratio is more important for this sector versus that sector? Because I don't know if we'll be back after a quick break. Hello listeners, Michael Guyad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now... Back to our discussion. The marketplace puts the same emphasis on different valuation ratios based on just the way certain sectors and industries move. Yeah, it's it's a great point. And and I think it's it's sector by sector for sure. And it's almost it's almost company by company in some cases. So I'll give sort of an example of of both of those. So sector by sector, I mean, I I love using free cash flow multiples and and I, I am in the camp that, well, we, we, we could talk about stock-based compensation later if you want to, but just for now, I, I do love free cash flow multiples. But I mean, when you're looking at banking, the banking sector or a retailer that, that's, that's really aggressively trying to liquidate inventory, free cash flow can become a very noisy metric. If I'm adding loans to the balance sheet to, to harvest more netage income, that technically under, under gap accounting counts as cash burn. If I am liquidating inventory like a company, I'll use maybe a company like Revolve for my portfolio. Like every other fashion, next-gen fashion company got ahead of itself with inventory positioning. Now it's liquidating that inventory. So free cash flow looks amazing because they're, they're, there's just cash flowing in the door, but it's kind of a noisy metric and it's not going to sustain. It's not going to be durable because once that inventory has been liquidated, free cash flow will look a lot more similar to what it has over the last 20 years for the company. But, but that's one thing. And then another weird gap accounting rule that I kind of guard against when when I'm valuing companies is under under gap net income, it, it's things like mark-to-market equity valuation gained or losses. I'm thinking of companies like 
Amazon with a Rivian stake or Shopify is another great example with Global E and Affirm. Those equity stakes have just been so violently fluctuating in terms of valuation. And as they as they violently fluctuate, they're quarterly marked based on their valuation. And that counts as if, if Rivian went up 50% during the quarter, that counts as more net income. And if it went down 50% during the quarter, less net income. And in reality, that has zero bearing on, on the overall operating profitability of the company and, and how how profitable it is and how profitable it can be. Gap accounting rules are, are, are weird. They, they work really well sometimes and they don't work all that well other times. But that to, those are two important points. And then for the other point that I want to make, and, and sorry if I'm rambling a, a bit too much, but for growth stocks that are not optimized for net income, that are pouring every single potential profit dollar back, back into more revenue growth and back into more demand and back into hopefully more operating leverage down the line as economies of scale build, I, I don't really like to use earn, earnings, earnings multiples because I mean, again, Shopify is another perfect example here. They're, they're earning near zero cents. Okay, you want to you want to say the PE is 3,000, that makes it sound ridiculous. But if you look at EBIT or if you look at gross profit, it looks a little bit more reasonable, not in Shopify's case, but in a lot of cases. So just use, using, using valuation denominators that companies are, are optimizing for, knowing the weird gap accounting rules that make free cash flow noisy, that sometimes can make gap net income pretty noisy. And then, yeah, I think, I think that's a good place to leave so I don't talk your off for 30 minutes. But no, um, no, 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 but I want you to keep referring on that because I think it, it, it's it, what I'm, why I give you a lot of credit because you're, you're certainly not talking like a lot of the you know, fintwit people that are you know, around your age that are just mooning in option zero D, DT type trading. You're talking about actual dynamics in terms of what drives a company more than just gamma squeezes. But yeah, you know, th- this is where I think it gets to be nuanced and challenging because everything you're talking about, yeah, you know, Anybody that's listening to this is probably thinking to themselves, wow, this is, this is pretty deep in terms of looking at, you know, what's going on with the company, which means they need to have an accounting degree, right? Which is obviously not the case. You know, how much of that kind of work that you're doing is, is attainable in terms of people understanding if they don't actually have, a, you know, kind of more accounting type of mindset? Such a good question. And thank you for that question because it gives me a great opportunity to kind of point people to, to free resources that now exist online. And, and also to plug the University of Michigan and go blue, best school in the world. And, and I went there. So obviously I think that, but I digress. It, it, it is complex. And, and there are, there are a set of, of static rules that, that you sort of need to learn if you, if you want to stock pick. And, and if you don't want to stock pick and if you want to put your money in an index fund and, and forget about it, that's a perfectly viable strategy as well. But if you want to go, if you want to dive into the world of single, sting, single stock investing, you do need sort of a, a, an accounting 101 base of knowledge and a financial valuation base of knowledge. And, and, and I mean, I, 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 got, I got a degree and, and you don't really need to get a degree because you go on, on sites like edX and, and the University of Michigan has world-renowned professors who are teaching you financial accounting and financial valuation at your pace, on demand, from your couch for free. So the, the barrier to learning... But that, that, that's really my favorite thing about the internet. The, the barrier to, to gaining knowledge and to absorbing knowledge and, and bettering ourselves is, is just a, a Google search away or a Bard search away, I guess now, or ChatGPT or, or whatever you use, but probably still Google search for most people. But it, it's all there. It's, it's all free. And, and I think it, it, is, it is a bit tedious to learn. But once you know it, what, what I'm saying is going to sound like second nature and it's going to sound like ar- arithmetic for you because it is, it is just memorizing rules and memorizing nuance and, and noticing the patterns that constantly pop up in, in terms of those rules and, and examples of them. Yeah, I mean, I think the barrier is the same barrier that's as old as time, which is just, you know, the mental barrier of having to put the effort in. Right? I mean, it, it takes, it's a lot easier to look at a chart than to look at, you know, a balance sheet. For sure, especially a bank balance sheet, man. 
those are those are an adventure. Uh, that's an interesting direction to go. To your point, it's well, maybe, let's maybe take a step back from that. What what types of companies tend to be hardest to evaluate fundamentally, right? So you just kind of alluded to banks. I'm sure there's more than that, but but talk about sort of where it's easier to get a handle versus not easier to get a handle on on what's going on with the company. Yeah, yeah, and and and. I almost, this sounds a bit counterintuitive, but I seek out difficulty because if, if it's easy, if it's if an incredibly easy story, then there's probably countless other people who have already thought of it and are already putting it into practice. And maybe that alpha has already been eroded away. But for, for me, it's, and I'll use, I'll use example of Airbnb in 2021 and now Uber in 2023. But it's, it's these companies that, that are, and, and Meta is another great example too, but it, it's, it's these companies that are kind of, Re- refocusing their, their their leadership philosophy and how they think about their business model and how bloated they need to be. And, and the COVID pandemic has been an incredible example for so many companies just overhiring and, and it just ir- irrationally building out their fixed cost base and now right-sizing it. But the flip side of that right-sizing is obviously unfortunate layoffs, which which suck. And it's it's kind of a necessary right now. Reduction in real estate footprints and, and, and impairment charges and all of those things. But it, it really leaves you with these gigantic revenue bases in the cases of um, Airbnb and Uber and, and Meta with where even a few basis points of margin expansion, even a few basis points of operating leverage can have a really needle moving impact on overall EBIT. And, and the thing about sell side analysts, not, not trying to be, not trying to sound arrogant or anything, because I think most of them do a great job and, and they provide a really important service. But, but their estimates, their, their estimates and, and how they track and how they evolve are usually not super current, are usually not super real time. So, so to me, when there's these massive transformations happening at Airbnb, where, okay, we're going to turn off performance marketing and see what happens. And okay, we still have all of the demand we had when we were spending on performance marketing, but now this cost bucket went to zero. Or, or for a company like Uber, okay, we're going to exit Italy. We're going to rationalize the product suite. We're, we're going we're gonna to fire a lot of people, unfortunately. And, and, and we're still not going to have any market share deterioration or any demand erosion at all what, whatsoever. And when that happens is when you really can start to see these 15 to 20% growers deliver 50, 60, 70, 80% EBIT compounding for several years, which is what Airbnb has done and what Uber is expected to do over time. And, and there are incremental cost cuts, there are incremental layers of efficiency being built into these models right now that I don't think are being accounted for in real time based on estimates. And I think that is, and, and obviously I could always be wrong. I've been wrong before and I'll, I'll definitely inevitably be wrong again. But I do not think that estimates in this case have, have come even remotely close to catching up to what these businesses are currently doing and how they're positioning themselves for future success. Now, Airbnb is kind of a backward looking example. Uber will be an example that's kind of coming to fruition right now. Another one might be Amazon with things like the localization of their fulfillment footprint. They, they've been running a lot of parallel redundant assets in their infrastructure in terms of fulfillment across the United States and North America for a long time. And now they're getting away from that while they layer on third-party selling, while they layer on advertising, while they layer on more cost cuts. It, it's it's just it it's business evolution. It's business model evolution that I think takes time for for analysts to understand. And and if I'm obsessively tracking every single news release and, and data point that I can get my hands on, I found that I can kind of identify that for maybe a bit quicker than than others can. And again, sometimes we'll be wrong. Okay. And I think that's actually another interesting point. If you're going to have the mindset of fundamental analysis and be a long-term investor, you know, yeah, you keep on getting new releases and information on your existing holding, but presumably you're not necessarily doing too many changes, right? Unless something dramatically happens on the fundamental side. What makes you tell something that 
you had a, a pretty firm belief in from a long-term perspective. Yeah. And, and I'll split that into, into two, into two kind of buckets and, and two mindsets, but in the mindsets would be trimming versus liquidating and exiting. So, for, so trimming for me is intimately connected and, 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 and based on multiple expansions. The trade desk and Shopify are the two positions that I've been trimming recently. It's, it's because of just a, aggressive multiple expansion and, and somewhat egregious forward multiples. I, but, but at, at the same time, when com- to me, when companies look ahead of their ski short term, but there are still miles long runways to enjoy and there's still phenomenal companies with, de- with a decade plus track record of consistent revenue and profit compounding with operating leverage and all those wonderful things I look for. I'm, I'm willing to hold a somewhat expensive stock, maybe even too expensive, which, which I think both of them are right now, and, and just trim around, trim around the edges and, and take some profits, but keep the core position intact knowing that it, it's, if they continue doing what I think they're going to do, that they won't be expensive forever. But, but that last point is extremely important, doing what I think they're going to do. And that's a really good segue into exiting and, and liquidating decisions. For me, it's, I, I mean, Microsoft had their, their Windows 8 drama. Netflix had their phasing out of, 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 div, of physical DVD drama. And then the point is the best companies in the world, all have hiccups and success is never linear and it's never without bumps. And so along those lines, good reasons to exit a position would be sharply slowing revenue growth or, or sharply deteriorating margins or sharply falling market share over a string of several quarters. That, that last point is important. If they, if they mess up for, for a three-month period, I'm generally... I, I do like to be a bit more patient than that. If it's bad enough, maybe I'll just stop adding and put it on maybe like a hot seat if you want to use a, a sports analogy. But it would have to be multiple quarters in a row of just really disappointing demand or really worrisome, wor- wor- worrisome margin evolution or things like egregious stock-based compensation and, and maligned leadership compensation incentives. The C-suite maybe serving as a revolving door of entrance and exits, just a, a hint at poor culture, things like that. But it's not... It, exiting decisions for me are not based on things like, well, this person was elected president and I wanted this person to be elected president instead. So now I have to sell. Or, or things like, a new competitor just entered this gigantic fragmented market. Oh boy, they're going to take 100% of it and I need to sell. Or a sell-side analyst just downgraded the name. Or a stock sold off after an excellent earnings report because maybe it's a Shopify and trade desk and got ahead of itself short term. So there are, there are good reasons in my mind to sell when they're not taking care of the things that are in their control, when they're not executing against the things that they, they have a say in executing against. And then there are bad reasons where there are just exogenous features that are messing with results on a temporary basis and, and really won't have any bearing on their long-term value creation for shareholders. I've, okay, let's talk about mastering earnings, the name of the space. And full disclosure, I now use AI to create the titles for these spaces based on the back and forth I do on DM as, as much as I criticize the narratives around AI. Clearly it's useful, but still requires some human oversight. Where are we in the earnings cycle here? Anything that you're looking for that maybe the media isn't paying too much attention to and I guess the bigger question is, is it going to matter? Because FOMO seems pretty damn powerful now. Yeah, where, so where are we in the earnings cycle? Tesla and Netflix were, were, were really the bellwethers last week. I guess you can throw JP Morgan and Bank of America in there who both had pretty positive, upbeat things to say about the American consumer. American Express also did. Now they have a very, very affluent customer base. So that's a little less important than a JP Morgan or a Bank of America. Because it's less, less of a, it's not as valuable to extrapolate that for the entire population. But for Bank of America and JP Morgan, it is more. But um, I guess looking ahead this week, today is going to be a marathon day. It's four o'clock. We, we have companies called Microsoft and, and called Alphabet and, and Visa all reporting earnings. 
after the bell. And in terms of kind of what I'm looking for, for for all three, I don't own any of the three positions, but I do track them, all three of them very closely just because, I mean, they're bellwethers and, and, and great hints at, at how other companies are going to perform. But for a company like Microsoft, I'm, I am excited to hear what they're going to say about this Copilot 365 product. Did, did some fun math on this where just a 10% conversion of of current 365 subscriptions, they've got over 300 million seats, but just call it 300 million. Just a 10% conversion for this gigantic, just mammoth company would mean a 5% boost. 5% boost to its overall 2023 revenue. Now, so I, I said 10% conversion. I've seen some people say 20. I've seen some people say 50. So just kind of let, let your mind take you where, where that goes in terms of moving the needle for Microsoft, which is just, it, it's hard to, it's hard to wrap your around, arms around how many levers of growth that this company has to pull at, at just hundreds of billions of dollars in revenue. So that'll be interesting in terms of Google and Microsoft. Any commentary we have on Google search market share and how Bing is doing. I'm sure they're both going to say they're doing great because they, they have an incentive to talk up their books inherently. But in terms of Alphabet, what I'm looking for is just more, more operating leverage at, at Google Cloud. So last quarter was the, its first quarter ever uh, of turning a positive even margin at, at, at Google Cloud for that segment. There was a bit of change in, in cost realization and where they were allocating costs, which helped a little bit. But if you strip that out, the margin was still pretty much break even and they had a ton of operating leverage year over year. So that has been a massive drag on their overall results just because they've been investing so aggressively ahead of the situation. I used air quotes there because that's what leadership always tells us. They're investing ahead of, ahead of, ahead of demand and, and ahead of expected customers. And now those expected customers and the expected demand are actually coming. So this profit drag is going to turn into a profit tailwind, which, which could be pretty exciting for Alphabet shareholders. And then you include that at the very end of last quarter heading into this quarter. They told us that the ad market for, for YouTube was kind of bottoming, showing green shoots. So that should be important for them. So th- those, those two are, I mean, it's just in- incredibly important results for the overall market for, for people who, who have any kind of maybe not several year time horizon like I do, who, who are looking at things more on a week to week basis will be extremely important. And then Visa, just Visa and MasterCard, both both this week. I talked about Bank of America and JP Morgan as great consumer bellwethers. These two are probably arguably the best bellwethers for consumer spend data. They represent trillions and trillions of volume together. They represent a large chunk of consumers in the United States and across the globe. And they give us a great sense in their in their spending pulse reports and in their quarterly earnings reports of how the consumer's feeling, which which is really important for pretty much every single other company that operates in the United States and isn't completely recession-proof or completely immune to the ebbs and flows of economic cycles, like a, maybe a tobacco company or something. So just really important earnings today. Tomorrow, we have, I mean, we have Meta, I think Chipotle reports, and then ServiceNow also, MasterCard later in the week. Just, just a really impactful market week for earnings. I'm excited to dig into all of it. The, the data is, for me, for, for the nerd, the stock market nerd that I am, is very fun to digest. To digest. Looking forward to about five and a half hours for now, from now when I get to digest. Yeah. So expecting versus capitalizing. I think, and 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 you, you feel free to disagree with me, but I think it 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 just is very much so based on the length of the expected project, or or so for maybe for a data center investment. If if Meta wants to just completely overhaul its data center footprint like it's doing with AI workloads that to, to me capitalizing that makes more sense than just having that flow down the income statement on a quarterly basis. But if maybe I'm hiring 10 people to go sell to go sell this new infrastructure and this new footprint, 
to new customers and have them ramp up their usage of these workloads, that that would be SG&A and operating expense, which should float on the income statement quarterly. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Sure. And I think you'd have to ask the accounting officers of both of those companies why why they treat very similar cost buckets very similarly. But that, again, goes back to just the nuance of gap accounting. And I mean, even, even within like things like input cost classification and gross profit, you can have three different CEOs at three very similar companies with three very similar cost classifications. And one call this an input cost and one call that an operating cost and, and half gross margins look much different. But in, in terms of and, and, and you're asking about banks, so this is a bit more complicated, but it, it is really looking at the cash flow statement and the income statement to, to make sure there's not gigantic discrepancies in, in, in how they're allocating costs. Because I mean, well, then that, that would be an, an issue where I would maybe lean away from investing in those names and investing in those stories unless I completely understood why they're making the decisions that they're making and, and why it makes sense, which in this case, just based on your stage read example, which I don't follow all that closely, I couldn't give you an intelligent answer for why they're specifically doing that. But, but I think that, that goes back to the earlier point about where do you focus the fundamental analysis, right? I mean, if you're talking about companies where there could be those types of different treatments, yeah, there might be some bigger upside if you can untangle and, and you know, normalize things. But I guess the bigger question is, why do that when there are other companies that you know could still be cheap and you can have a better handle on? Yeah, and I think, so I... I, I I'm going to answer this in a certain way. And if I didn't answer the question the way you wanted me to, please ask it again and I, I can answer it again. But I think this is just an important argument for, for, not, for, for one valuation metric not being the end-all, be-all prize of, of evaluating companies and how different business models with different nuance and different cost classifications definitely need to look at a free cash flow multiple and definitely need to look at maybe a contribution profit multiple or a book value multiple in, in the case of banks or, or, or net income multiple just to really round out the story and and to make sure that they're all, to use a maybe not a super professional word, all driving and, and meshing together and, and to ensure that there's not maybe un- unscrupulous accounting activity going on and that it, it truly is just how they think it is best to account for certain cost classification. Like price to contribution profit, like you would with price to earnings or price to EBIT or price to recast flow. Yeah, just another slice and another way of, of looking at profitability. And an extremely important one for, for maybe a company like for marketplaces that have variable expenses and fixed expenses that are very neatly tied in two buckets and, and just eliminating one to, to see a view of profitability in that light and then eliminating another to see net income. And, and yeah, you had mentioned earlier your stock based compensation as something that you look at or consider. Maybe outline a little bit of that, Brad. I'm going to make the assumption that this is ultimately all about alignment, but maybe there's more nuance to that. So accounting for accounting for free or stock comp and free cash flow. Yeah, no, we'll just talk. Sure. Yeah, stock based companies. You mentioned earlier that that's something you can, you'd like to look at as part of the deep dive into. Sure. Yeah. So I, I think the debate on Twitter is, or maybe everywhere, but but I, I live on Twitter, so on Twitter it, it's there, definitely there is no debating on Twitter. People do not debate. They just 
tweeting each other nonstop. It, it, it's almost impossible to have any kind of like actual discourse with tweets on Twitter anymore, but that's a different discussion. Okay, so the peering on Twitter, maybe that's the better word, is that free cash, so should free cash flow be treated as a cash expense or a dilution expense? And it is, it is not a cash expense. It should not be treated as a cash expense. And I know some people probably hear that and, and, and they see red and, and they're saying, well, you're, you're diluting shareholders and, and you're eroding profits. So it has to be treated as an expense. And to that, I say you are 100% right. It's just treating it as the expense that it actually is. When, when you're, when you're selling or when you're gifting or granting shares to, to, to your employees and, and they're selling those shares when they're finally allowed to on, on markets and then collecting money. There's not cash going out the door on your balance sheet. Like you're, you're not, you're not paying them for those shares. What, what you are paying for is that your, is that your valuation multiple. So the overall share count is, is diluting, is diluting the value that, that profit growth and profit compounding should be delivering to shareholders. So when you have, when price per share is, if, if there's a million shares instead of 500,000 shares, that's definitely got to be taken into account and taken into the calculus. For me specifically, it's, it's not, it's not foregoing the ad backs on, on the free cash flow statement because we, we, because we, I mean, we have that view that what that's trying to accomplish. We have that view of profitability on the income statement, but it's tracking free cash flow per share with the ad back so that we can, that, that we can penalize companies for diluting shareholders and for growing the share count and for giving me less voting power and, and, and less say over the, the future potential of the company instead of treating it like a cash expense, and especially because for things like PSUs, they, they, they're granted when they're, when they're granted, they're granted at strike prices where if they never, they never hit, if those strike prices never come to fruition, you, you don't get to take those, those stock comp dollars back under, under gap accounting. They are still expensed as stock comp dollars, but never actually turn into shares and never actually dilute shareholders, which is just another reason why I, I really truly believe it should be treated as dilution instead of fudging with the, the free cash flow statement to, to eliminate it. Now, I do know a lot of people disagree with me on this, which is why I give both views when I put together numbers, but I, I just do one over the other. How, how important is earning surprises to your way of looking at companies? You may be familiar with this, but you know, there's a, a well-known phenomenon called PEAD, which sounds like it's a medical condition, but it's post-earnings announcement drift, right? The idea that you get some kind of earnings surprise, there's a gap, and then there's a you know, gap in price. And there historically tends to be yeah, you know, initial underreaction to just how good the earnings release is, despite the gap, and then the kind of momentum right that persists at least in the intermediate short term. Do you 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 know tend to weight in your mind earnings surprises more heavily, and yeah, how do you factor in the magnitude of the surprise as something that could be consistent versus just a one off? Sure. So magnitude of surprise, I, I think that's that that was a really important piece of context that you added because I think so on, under kind of going back to those sell rules, it, it's. And on underwhelming revenue versus underwhelming profit. Yeah, if they're supposed to earn maybe fifty cents a share and they earn forty nine cents a share and, and earnings grew thirty eight percent year over year instead of thirty nine percent, that that that's a lot less impactful and a lot less important to me than if we had a company like Upstart and and don't mean to pick on them. I know they're a very cyclical business, but supposed to do I I don't know the exact number, but it was something along the lines of two hundred million in revenue and did eighty million in revenue or something like that. And and when there's that degree of miss is is really when when I do take that pause and stop leaning into names, but if, if there isn't that degree of miss, if it's very subtle and being sold off anyway, and, and the sell-off doesn't really make sense to me, I, I don't. Again, don't don't use sentiment and charts and, and and short-term factors all that much, but I do use the three-day rule, which is I guess if, if a company's selling off twenty percent in a day, just just give it a few days or give it seventy-two hours to, to digest that move and that reaction. 
if you do want to lean in and if I if I miss the bottom, if I if it goes up a little bit over that time, I'm, I'm fine with it. But but yeah, in, in terms of earnings drift, that that isn't a, a super big part of, of my process. But I, I know it's rightfully an important part of a lot of processes. Yeah, yeah, that's more, you know, short intermediate, you know, phenomenon rather than, you know, a longer term dynamic just as it relates to underreaction and overreaction from the the studies that I've seen. Okay, let's talk about, you know, levels of conviction and waiting since you mentioned risk management a bit earlier. I think it's fair to say that if if you have a more of a fundamental mindset, you're thinking more like a true investor, like a business owner, you can have higher conviction because you know what the the underlying dynamics of the company are and you know the stock price is undervalued. How much do you weight a particular position? How do you how do you diversify? Talk through that for a bit because when I think fundamentals, I think high conviction. Definitely. And and there are exactly like you said, there are varying levels of conviction in the portfolio. To me, a big piece of this decision and a big piece of position sizing at the beginning, and 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 I do usually let positions grow from here on, on their own organically, but it's are you are you making money? Are are you profitable? Do you have free cash flow and net income? And if not, are you racing quickly towards that point? And will you be there in the in the very near future? And in those cases, I, I generally like an Amazon or, or like a what's another good example? Like a match group from 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 earlier in the year will 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 make it a four, five, six percent of a of a portfolio pretty quickly and, and let it grow from there. But if there are just pie in the sky highly speculative bets where my mouth waters over the, the upside and, and the potential, but the ability of it being a dud and it just being a nothing and a zero is a lot higher than than pretty much anything in a portfolio. And, and the name I think of like that's in the portfolio is Lemonade, which I know a lot of you probably think is a, a terrible, awful company. And, and time will tell if you're right. But for those companies that aren't making money, that are, I think, I think it's two years away from positive adjusted EBITDA. <laughs> so quickly racing in the right direction, but the margin is still has miles and miles to go. That is is when I'll start the, the position at maybe 0.5% of the portfolio or 1% of the portfolio or 1.5%. And, and whether it's 0.5 or 1 or 1.5 1 is is definitely a case-by-case case basis. But but yeah, I think just looking at my portfolio right now, the top 14 holdings are about three quarters of, of my overall holdings. And there's only 20 overall. Definitely, I, I think a lot of people would, would call my portfolio somewhat concentrated. It doesn't feel that way to me, but I think a lot of people would have that opinion, and that is a, a large part of where that that con, that concentration is guided. What what it's guided by now, if there's just world class companies like Meta or like Amazon that that I, I and it just I, I know they're they're not going anywhere, and they have half one has half the billion half, half the planet on its apps, and, and the other has forty percent e commerce market share in, in North America. That again is when I'll lean in a little bit more aggressively at the beginning and make it a bit bigger. Just if 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 the, the downside protection is a bit more compelling, what's just such an iconic brand like an Amazon or like a Meta? I'm gonna ask you: Does does this, the stuff that you see on FinTwit drive you a little bit crazy? It's, it's I have to tell you, it's, I've used that term many times before. The level of uneducated speculation is astounding, and that's a function of ease of access through which people can trade commission free, zero DTE options, and the market environment causing a hell of a lot of overconfidence, both ways, for the bulls and the bears, because of the stair-step nature of the, the bears last year and the stair-step nature or melt-up, what are going to hold the bulls this year. Does, it, does, does anything in, in, your, in your soul make you say, wow, I, I feel like I'm a, in the land of the blind, the one-eyed guy is king kind of thing, just because you're actually looking at fundamentals as opposed to just doing emojis? Yeah, maybe. I think 
and 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 I obviously I'm extremely biased, but I think the people who are who are interacting with me on Twitter, maybe I do maybe I just do a good job of of pretty aggressively blocking. <laughs> but the people who are are interacting with me on Twitter are generally are interested in, in fundamentals and generally are interested in, in digging deeper and learning more. And there is there is I mean I can't deny it. There's so much noise on, on the app and and there there's so much so much unproductive dialogue and. And aggressive bickering and, and attacking people versus attacking the idea, which just kind of drives me bonkers. But at, at the end of the day, I, I am quite grateful for Twitter. It, it it is it is the top of funnel that helped me build a business, and and business would not be what it is today without the app. Definitely comes with its with its kind of yeah. I'll, I'll definitely come with its list, but but all in all, I, I think I, I do like it here because <laughs> I spend my day on here. So of course, I like it here. Yeah, but I, I share the same view, and it's, I don't. I'm at the point now where just the number of followers and reach I've got, I want to just diversify my own social media reach beyond just Twitter, which I think you're also doing right with the YouTube side. But yeah, no, obviously Twitter has been, or, or, or pronounce it now that it's X shitter has been a, a big driver of, of attention. For those, Brad, that want to learn more about your way of looking at markets, where would you point them? Yeah, stockmarketnerd.com. That's where I, I post all the newsletter content, thousand pages of, I like to think, very detailed and, and nuanced and bias limiting content and on, on, on the newsletter. It's all free. So no reason not to sign up. Go check it out. Good place to wrap this Twitter space up. Everybody, please make sure you follow Brad Freeman here. And hopefully I'll see you all later. You're going to see all the Twitter space at around noon Eastern. Thank you, Brad. Appreciate it. Have a great day, man. Cheers, everybody. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Leadlag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Leadlag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.